This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. My name is Caroline Hugg, and today I'm joined with British economist and author of The Case for the Green New Deal, The Production of Money, and The Coming First World Debt Crisis, Anne Pettifer. Anne, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, hello, Caroline. It's a pleasure. Um, so you recently spoke um, in our um, Edinburgh Forum last week, where in your speech uh, you mentioned this reality of the billionaire economy. Could you explain this to me? So the argument is that actually the uh, the way in which the, the global economy, the economy worldwide, if you like, has been deregulated largely and uh, liberalized, to use uh, the term often used, is to favor the 1%. Middle-income earners or even low-income earners have watched as their real incomes relative to inflation and so forth have declined in value, not just since inflation um, began to um, affect us all uh, and after the Russian invasion of um, Ukraine, but actually for the last 12 years since the global financial crisis. And so what that has resulted in is the 1% doing extraordinarily well, and it became most marked, I think I tried to show in my presentation, after 2020 and the huge amounts of quantitative easing, new liquidity, if you like, that the central banks had spurred, spurned out in, uh, had uh, spewed out in 2020. That was a year in which those who had savings accumulated enormous savings and used those, as I tried to show, to, for example, buy super yachts uh, on a scale you know, the sale of super yachts in the years 2020 and 2021 were higher than they've ever been. Well, the macroeconomic consequence of having a 1% that are extraordinarily wealthy and the rest are losing in real terms their income is a imbalances in the global economy. But be that the 1% don't spend all the money that they earn. They tend to save vast amounts of that money Whereas the, the, the low-income category of people uh, tend to spend everything that they have. Surpluses build up in, in the global economy. Um, and surpluses on the one hand with those of, who have and deficits on the other. If we start thinking about um, history and you know these past recessions that we've had, you've mentioned yes. that Western economies have failed to learn from the past. Yeah. Um, if we specifically hone in on the UK, what has yeah. gone wrong and why is it one of the worst affected countries in Western Europe? One of the flaws of the British economy is that we are geared towards speculation. Far better to invest in the stock market or to invest in property, um, for example. And property is something that if you invest in it, you really basically sit back on your butt, so to speak and wait for the rent to be collected or for the, the value of it to rise. And, of course, there's the belief that the value of property will rise forever and ever and never go into reverse. 
Um, but what that means is the investor doesn't have to do very much, doesn't have to take great risks, uh, doesn't have to be patient and so on. Um, so that's speculative investment. And we tend to have a preference for speculative investment over investment in real productive activity that would generate employment, for example, but also income, uh, wages for the workers and profits for the, in, for the entrepreneur. And the other thing we haven't invested in, but we're not half as bad as the Americans, we haven't invested sufficiently in infrastructure. We need to create the infrastructure needed to make business purr along effortlessly, if you like. And that includes, for example, transport. And um, but, it, but there are other things that are really important. Education is extraordinarily important. Uh, skilled training. Uh, we don't have, for example, I mean, what I'm horrified about is that we don't have a construction workforce that can cope with our construction demands. Right now, we should be investing in retrofitting our housing. We can't do it because we don't have a skilled construction workforce. Um, and then again, there are the imbalances. You know, we, we live beyond our means. Um, we rely, if you like, on the goodwill of foreign lenders uh, to keep our balance of payments relatively stable. But we're not making things to sell. Um, and we seem to think we don't need to make things to sell internationally. But actually, that is, an ex you know, all of the most prosperous economies, China, the United States, Germany, are all exporters. And they all, you know, build and innovate and create goods and services for export. We're being a little reluctant to do that, and that's, again, a flaw. And then if you add on to that issues like Brexit yeah. and uh, political instability and then the odd pandemic, <laughs> it all adds up and it all makes for an economy that is now amongst the weakest in the OECD in terms of um, GDP. You've also mentioned um, the role of central banks and the roles that that they play, yeah. right? And I think you referred to them in your speech as the elephant in the room. Yeah. And you were quite critical about their focus on consumer price inflation over asset price inflation. So yeah. could you explain this further and, and kind of the impact that this has on wider society? The way in which central banks have been oriented over the last 30 years is to favor and to manage the financial sector and in particular, the global financial sector. Um, and then, so we saw, for example, the massive bailouts of 2007-8, when central banks came to the rescue of the private banking system and bailed them out with, with what is nothing less than taxpayer largesse. Now, it doesn't look like taxes, but all of them are backed by, by taxpayers and, and by the public sector. And yet their orientation, if you like, is to serve the interests of the international system. Um, and that's become more so since the crisis because they came to believe that they had to stabilize the international system to help stabilize the, the domestic system. Um, but they've really gone too far. And in my view, you know, I thought quantitative easing was necessary after the financial crisis. But what struck me was that the QE was almost unconditional. You can have all this liquidity, you can have all this effect of cash to bail you out because of mistakes you, the sector, made yourselves, and there are no terms and conditions. Now, the hope was 
that if they got this cheap money, if you like, they would then lend it on to the real economy. And of course, they didn't do that. They, instead, they took the money and they invested it in assets. And assets are property, things like property, racehorses, works of art, software, but they include um, bonds, you know, government bonds and corporate bonds. And so an awful lot of that QE went into these assets. You know, we saw house prices in London just go through the roof as foreign investors came here and inflated the price of our properties. Um, and we saw as bond prices rose and the yields on them fell. Um, so, you know, what that is, is asset price inflation. So the central banks not only fueled that asset price inflation, but they sat back and saw it happen and didn't do anything to cool it. And then there was the war in Ukraine. And now I'm, um, I've, I've been doing some research with others on uh, what's happened to inflation since then. And I'm now convinced that while it is the case that, yes, the war triggered an oil price hike, in fact, prices were rising before that, one of the reasons that Putin was as audacious and as bold as he is and was in February 2022 was that his uh, administration had been massively enriched by high, high oil prices over the, over the preceding period. There's a massive market in what we call paper oil. The paper oil market is the speculations. That it's a commodity market. It's a speculative market. And after... February 20, or just about the time of February 22, speculators piled into this market. And because there was this war of money aimed at oil, uh, at, at speculation on oil, speculation that it would go up, 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 and then it would come down again, um, that that caused the prices to rise. So what the, the, the central banks have done instead, because we certainly had inflation, no question that that high oil price was feeding into all the other prices uh, that, you know, that we use oil for almost everything we do. Um, what they did then to decide that they would do was crush demand, i.e. force down wages, raise interest rates, raise mortgage rates, crush people's incomes. And by crushing people's incomes, you hope to crush inflation. Well, you may do that, but in the process, you're going to kill off the economy. And you're going to create unemployment. You're going to make the public deficit to rise again. You're going to have public finances out of order. You know, we're going to go back all the way through another recession and another destruction of value. People will lose their homes. People will lose their businesses. It's awful. Consumer price inflation is not a good thing. Um, it hurts the elderly. It hurts people who are on fixed incomes. The, the group it doesn't hurt are debtors. If you owe money, inflation erodes the value of your debt. Consumer price inflation doesn't cause global um, financial crises, but asset price inflation or deflation causes global financial crises. And therefore, allowing an asset bubble to expand is reckless in the extreme. Could you give any examples of um, central banks that perhaps have followed a different approach? Well, there's the Central Bank of Japan. Okay. Uh, I mean, the Central Bank of Japan has had profound experience of asset price crises. 1989 was devastating for the, the Japanese economy. 
1985, I think it was, as a big plaza record, interest rates had fallen in the United States and the Japanese had kept their rates at 3%. And what happened was that a flood of money left the United States and went to Japan where they could earn 3%. So they would uh, invest in there and get the 3% and then go back to the United States. And that caused a flood of money to go into Japan that was then poured into assets, Japanese assets. That caused a massive asset price inflation, which then imploded in 89. Um, and Japan has never recovered from that. But having said that, Japan has managed to maintain living standards uh, amongst the Japanese. I think things got were hard in the 90s, but now things are relatively good if you're a Japanese citizen. Um, uh, you, know, you may not be making the kind of capital gains made before the 80s, but life is pretty damn good in Japan. And the Central Bank of Japan has not been hiking rates and is, had, has been supporting the domestic economy, mainly because for political reasons they must or, or else they'd have social unrest. Japan is an example of, of, a, of a, a central bank that hasn't followed that route. But I'm afraid it is pretty much on its own. All most of the other central banks have followed the the way the, the model of the Federal Reserve. I wanted to touch on Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement and yeah. um, kind of understand your analysis of the statement and, and whether you would have suggested something different. Right. Well, so, yes, I would have, you know, first of all, the government is massively supporting the oil companies in this crisis. Um, yeah. We think they're supporting citizens, but actually they're supporting the money is going to the to these oil majors who are making extraordinary amounts of money out of this inflatable bubble. And I'm not against that, I uh, have to say. They lost $76 billion in 2020, I think it was, when the, the price of oil collapsed. They're talking down the British economy. The British economy at the moment is weak. Um, We're recovering from the pandemic. The private sector is suffering and the small businesses are suffering because of Brexit and they need support. They need help. And the only uh, only company in town that can help those private sector uh, entrepreneurs is the government. The government, uh, my friend Mariana Machicato, who's a wonderful economist, always talks about the private sector when it comes to investment as timid mice and the public sector as a roaring lion. And that's what it is. And for good reason. You know, it's got behind it 30 million taxpayers who are not going to just pay their taxes this year, but will pay their taxes for the next 30, 40, 50, 100 years. And that gives them an enormous firepower to raise the cash needed to invest. And I think, you know, our infrastructure is crumbling. We need decent public transport. But above all, because of the climate crisis, we need to be checking our flooded up areas prone to flooding here. In, I'm in Suffolk. And, you know, we're, very, we, we're on a coastline, which is anyway sinking into the sea. When the seas rise, we're going to be flooded all across this coastline. And we have power stations, nuclear power stations and so on. So we need flood defences. We need to support those communities that are prone to floods. We need to re, um, uh, what's the, re-insulate our housing because our housing stock is Victorian. It's very leaky. Um, and all of that would create jobs, would create, would stimulate small 
businesses, would create income, and above all, it would create income for the government. So the government gets income when people are employed and pay their taxes, their um, uh, uh, pay taxes at the end of the month, or if if businesses make profits or capital gains taxes or whatever. The government is the one that benefits from that. What is your highest conviction call for 2023? Oh, for 2023, it's pretty grim, to be honest. I mean, the thing is, um, there is a global crisis and then there's a British crisis. Um, and I'm more focused, if you like, on the global crisis. Yeah. And I'm not going to bet that it's going to blow up in the whole thing is going to blow up in 2023. These things are hard to predict precisely but that there will be an asset price collapse seems to me utterly inevitable and it's only a matter of time. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. 